welcome to the AKC podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. My, my title is Choosing to Follow Radical Religions. Um, I'm not going to talk much about, well, pretty well not at all, about what's actually meant by radical. Uh, Dr. Dehanus did um, a good introduction for the first lecture in the series on that topic, and I don't disagree with him at all. Radical really means root, and getting to what you think is the sort of fundamental basics of a particular religion or ideology. Um, It's not exactly the same as fundamentalist, which is used in a wide variety of ways. Originally, it refers to some Protestants in the early 20th century who wanted to get back to the real basics of the inerrant, as they saw it, the inerrant Bible. Um, But it's being used very, very widely nowadays. But it, it... is implying that other religions have gone astray and it wants to go back to what the real truth is. And a lot of the religions that I've been studying do that, but by no means all of them. Um, I don't like the word extremist. I find myself using it, but I don't like it for two reasons. One is extreme what? You've got to assume some kind of a norm if you're talking about extreme you can be extremely nice or extremely good, but somehow people think it means you're extremely bad because you're an extremist. And the the other reason is that it's used uh, politically in Russia and now in some parts of Central Asia to condemn certain religions. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, have been liquidated, to use their term, the the Russian term, not not the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, which means that they're banned and all their property is confiscated because they fall under the category of extremists. They're meant to have extremist literature. And there are other movements, uh, Scientology, um, Nursi, the followers of Nursi, readers of Nursi, although they don't have a group in, in the sort of way that the Jehovah's Witnesses have. And actually, the Jehovah's Witnesses are extremely pacifist, although it implies that they're violent. Um, they, they, they were prepared to die in Auschwitz rather than take up arms. And um, they, they have strong conscientious objections to any kind of military action. Um, and terrorist, radical, and terrorism is often put together. Now, some of the religions that I've been studying are terrorists. I I will be talking about one terrorist group. Um, But very, very few of the, well, I used to call them new religious movements, and I'll be talking about new religious movements today, but alternative religions or minority religions, the sorts of religions that we're interested in at Inform, um, very, very few are terrorist groups, but there are some, undoubtedly. Um, so having got that clear, that the 
word in my title that I want to concentrate on is choosing to follow radical religions. And choosing assumes some kind of agency. The person decides this, this is what they want to do. Um, I'm a sociologist of religion, and sociology is concerned with the relationship between the individual and society. And society is something that exists out there. It only exists in so far as we as individuals recognize it, but it exists independent of any particular individual, and we all face it. We're all constrained by it and enabled by it in a whole lot of different ways. And it has properties that you can't reduce to the properties of the individual. It has structures, there are cultures, things like that. And so a basic question is, how much does the individual respond to, or in what ways does the individual respond to, the social situation in which he or she finds themselves? And it's quite important, I think, to recognize that there is this something we call social reality or society that does affect us. I mean, we can choose to ignore it, but we are then ignoring it. Uh, we can react against it, we can follow it blindly, etc. But there is an ongoing relationship, there's a process um, whereby the individual is affected and affects society. And so this leads to questions about free will and determinism, and philosophers have been going around in circles about this for ages, and there are lots of words like fatalism, and they don't seem to get anywhere very much. And in the 1970s, when I started studying new religious movements, um, these were ones like the Unification Church, the Moonies, the Church of Scientology, the Hare Krishna, all those, they were, they were mushrooming throughout the West, and people decided that um, they, they, they were not choosing to join them, that they had been controlled in some way or brainwashed. Brainwashing was the only explanation that people could come up with why people would join these extraordinary groups. There's uh, somebody brainwashing there. Um, so, I am going to talk today about two case studies that I did. Um, one of them, I'll just be talking about it at the quantitative and group level, and the other one I'll be talking about it as a qualitative study at an individual level. Um, to start with the kind of um, control that psychologists have thought uh, or noticed applying to people. What, one of the early pioneers of this study was Pavlov, and his Pavlov dogs you've probably heard about, and conditioning. Um, the dogs could be conditioned to salivate at the sound of a bell if that sound was repeatedly presented at the time that the food came up. And first of all, the dogs were presented with the food and they salivated. And then you got the bell, and then you got the bell and the food, and they salivated. And then when you got the bell by itself, they salivated. So that was classical conditioning. Um, this is where you, the um, dog or the human being, associates a stimulus with an involuntary response. 
And then this was elaborated into operant conditioning, where the person or animal was associating voluntary behavior and a consequence. So the example might be that a rat is um, given some food if he presses the green button and does not get any food if they press the red button. So this is conditioning where there is reward and punishment and they learn it um, and alter their behavior in a, their, their voluntary behavior in a way that isn't just instinctual like the salivating. And then you've got some rather nasty experiments that um, psychologists have done. One of the best known is the Milgram experiment, which was carried out um, in the 60s after Eichmann trial in um, Israel. I, you, most of you probably don't remember it, but it was very much discussed then. We, we had Holocaust Day last week. Um, why people in Germany would do such atrocious things, not just the Hitlers and the Eichmanns and the Himmlers, but the ordinary millions of everyday, ordinary people were carrying out awful stuff um, in, in, in the um, concentration camps. And um, what Milgram was doing was asking, if you are told to do this by an authority figure, will you do it? And what he did, was to um, get a couple of people and say to them, I'm doing a teaching experiment, and um, I want one of you to be the teacher and one of you the learner. And this was a setup, because the learner was actually um, part of the experiment and was in on the game. But what the teacher was told to do was to read out questions, and if the learner gave a wrong answer, had to press a button which gave an electric shock. And it was all pre-planned when the um, learner would give this shock. And what he found was that they went up um, and 65% uh, of the people went on. They, they had to be told by this authority figure to go on if they questioned going on, giving this punishment. But 65% of them went up to 450 volts, which is potentially lethal. And all of them went as far as 300 volts, which is pretty nasty shock. So this was rather a horrific finding. Probably wouldn't be able to do it with ethics committees nowadays. But there were various variations on this. But it was clear that an authority figure wearing a white shirt, a white um, apron, what do I mean, overalls, um, will, could persuade people to do things which they wouldn't normally. And then Solomon Ash did an experiment on the effect of peer pressure. And what happened there was that he had a group of um, students, um, male college students, Americans, and he would hold up a card and ask the students in turn which um, of the three lines in another card, A, B, or C, was the same size as the original card. And what he actually did was to have the uh, most, 
nearly all, apart from one, of the students actually were in on the game. And after this had been done one or two times, they started making mistakes and being fairly obviously wrong and saying that it was B that was like the card. And what he found there was that um, only 23% um, didn't give in to peer pressure. So less than a quarter gave in to peer pressure. Um, only 5% or just under 5% succumbed all of the time, but there was enough in the experiment to show that peer pressure could be pretty persuasive. And it certainly is in a lot of um, the things that go on, the processes that go on in minority religions, in all religions, in fact. Now, brainwashing. Um, brainwashing became popularized by um, Edward Hunter, who was a journalist, and did a study on um, the brainwashing that he said was carried out in Red China. And then Edgar Schein also did a study on prisoners of war in China and how they were brainwashed. But actually, an awful lot of them managed not to be brainwashed. And then a book that has been very influential in the so-called cult scene um, and that people who believe that brainwashing does carry on, and that's the explanation for people joining movements, is this one by Robert J. Lifton, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, a study in brainwashing in China, but actually he broadens that and he's written quite a lot about it. And he is, um, to my mind at least, one of the most um, sensible of the people who do talk about brainwashing. Actually, he doesn't talk about brainwashing. He's more likely to talk about mind control or thought reform. Um, but he does use it in the subtitle of this book. And chapter 22 gives uh, a list of eight different methods by which brainwashing is meant to take place like um, milieu control and um, jargon and all sorts of other things that I, I won't go into here. Um, but it is used a lot. Um, then, coming on to more practical level, in the early 70s, the um, worry that parents were having when they saw their children disappear um, into groups was growing in America and Western Europe. And um, a man called Ted Patrick um, instigated professional deprogramming, which involved kidnapping somebody who had joined one of these groups and holding them against their will and doing all sorts of nasty things to them until either they convinced their captors that they had renounced their faith or they managed to escape to get back to their movement. Um, this is a picture of a Mooney, a unificationist, being kidnapped in um, Paris in 1976. And there were a whole lot of books that came out uh, explaining why people had had to take their children, rescue their children. These were adult children um, out of dangerous brainwashing cults. And um, this is one by a, a mother of an ex-Mooney and the ex-Mooney. But there are 
scores of them, possibly hundreds of these, I escaped from my cult books. Um, the movement that had probably the most deprogrammings and um, was the, the, the most hated by a whole, according to a whole lot of opinion polls, was the Unification Church, which had been set up in 1954 in Korea um, by the Reverend Sun Myung Moon. And he claimed that he was the Messiah and was, had come to um, restore the kingdom of heaven on earth. And he was best known for he and his second wife, who were known as true parents, conducting mass weddings when literally thousands of couples were married off to each other. And they had been matched by Moon, who held matching ceremonies, and the girls on one side and the boys on the other, you marry you. And um, often they were marrying people that they'd only met two or three days before, and they might not even speak the same language. Anyway, th this, not surprisingly, attracted quite a lot of attention. And it was thought that for anybody to do this or to give up good college careers and join the Unification Church, they must have been brainwashed. And the brainwashing went on in various residential weekends um, where the... Um, the, the people who went would receive lectures, there were games, um, singing, uh, sort of tasks like washing up or cooking or doing um, housework, things like that. Um, the, I, I went to several of these brainwashing um, residential weekends. Um, this was one in Camp K, just outside San Francisco, which was meant to be one of the most efficient of the brainwashing places. Um, I was a bit frightened before I went. It was at the beginning of my study of the Unification Church, and I, I left my things in a suitcase with a lawyer and said, if I'm not back by Monday, send the police to get me. I think they were a bit disappointed when I came back. And nothing happened. <laughs> um, anyway. Different people have different perceptions and different interpretations of the world. And you're probably familiar with a whole lot of these different um, pictures. Is this a rabbit or is it a duck? And they, they have far more complicated ones. Um, but also, we um, might see the same thing, but give it a different value. And the Moonies were saying, we're happy. Uh, we're not brainwashed, this is what we chose of our own free will. And then they would be told, well, you've been brainwashed to believe that, and you've got this circle. And it was what they believed, rather than the process that went on at the residential workshop weekend, that was usually determining that this must be brainwashing rather than choice. So the question then is, do people choose to convert to the Unification Church? or are they subjected to irresistible and irreversible brainwashing um, as they are pres presumably meant to do. And I, at that time in the 70s, thought that if people chose, then deprogramming was a violation of their right to freedom of belief, and a pretty awful one at that. 
But if they were under some sort of control, hypnosis, menticide, all sorts of different words, then they should be helped by professionals and not by some of the thunks that were doing the deprogramming. Not all of them were thunks, but quite a few of them were. There were stories of being held up by gunpoint and rape was being used. Um, it was pretty nasty. So um, this book that I wrote, it was meant to be originally a book about the Unification Church altogether, and joining would just be one to chap one, chapter one, but it ended up being the whole um, book just on the brainwashing and chapter, or choice. Um, so my question was, how could I investigate empirically so that anyone would have to agree with the results? Um, so long as they had their senses about them. So it would have to be an empirical investigation. And you couldn't just start by saying they are brainwashed or they chose of their own free will. And I just had then to operationalize choice. That means make it recognizable so that anybody could recognize whether it had taken place or not. And my um, definition was that people are active agents in deciding between two or more possible options when they can anticipate the possible potential existence of the um, possible options for their future. And in doing so, they draw on previous experiences, previous form values, and interests that would guide their decision. It might be their DNA or um, genetic makeup. And they may have been determined in some way or controlled, influenced in reaching that stage, but at any one particular time, were they capable of choosing A rather than B? And so this meant that I had four main variables. There was the individual with his or her predispositions, values, hopes, fears, experiences, etc. There was the social context, which was the workshop where the irreversible and um, irresistible brainwashing was meant to take place. And then there was the alternative one, which was joining the Unification Church, or alternative two, which was remaining in the non-Unification Church society. So my null hypothesis was that the social context was the independent variable. It would be the social context that meant that anybody attending a residential unification church would become a Mooney. And the, the conventional wisdom was that somebody went and it, say they went through the sausage machine or the Skinner box or whatever it was and came out a Mooney. And um, other variables, such as what the individual was like, or probably the um, two alternatives, or, although they would have been painted in certain ways in the workshop, um, would be irrelevant. So I looked at over a thousand people who had attended a residential workshop, and this was just in Britain for this particular bit of the study, in 1979. And what I found was that 90% did not join the Unification Church. They went through the workshop and they said, thanks very much, but I don't want to be a Mooney. Some of them had enjoyed it and some of them didn't like it. Interestingly, 
Those who were Catholics, lapsed Catholics, said I had my awareness raised um, and I decided I wanted to go back to the Catholic Church. I used to tell my um, priestly friends in the Catholic Church if they wanted to get their lost souls back, they should send them to a Mooney workshop, but I don't think any of them did. Um, also, I discovered that the majority of those who did join left of their own free will within a couple of years. So there were only four or five percent left at the end of two years, and it gradually diminished. And then I've gone on studying the Moonies as long as other movements, and I found that 90% of the first batch of second generation unificationists have left. Those are the ones who've been born into the movement and presumably been utterly socialized, and yet they decided as soon as they could to leave. The second batch, are after around about sort of mid late 80s, um, they, they are more likely to stay, but the church has changed enormously since then and it's far easier to stay in it than it was at that point. So the conclusion was that the workshop was unable to determine either irresistible or irreversible results, and the individual, him or herself, must be an important variable. So the second explanation that um, I found people were making for joining was that, oh well, not everybody joins, perhaps, but it's a suggestible, damaged, or weak individuals who are susceptible to the workshop techniques. And they're the ones who are going to join. And again, this was circular. Well, they joined, therefore they must be weak and suggestible in some sort of way, um, rather than looking at the process. And so the second null hypothesis was that the people who joined the Unification Church would be more suggestible or vulnerable or weak than the control group. And I collected from various papers, uh, newspaper cuttings, and um, talking to the so-called anti-cultists, um, the sorts of things that they thought would make people suggestible. And this was things like an unhappy childhood or suffering some sort of traumatic experience or weak educational achievement, those sort of things. And... Um, then the, 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 the hypothesis to continue would be that the workshop non-joiners would be slightly more suggestible than normal, but less than the unification joiners. And a control group, it's essential to use a control group methodologically, it by definition would be normal. And I had a control group that I selected uh, not completely randomly, but um, so that they would fit as far as possible the sort of socioeconomic um, background, age, as um, the Moonies were. And the result of the comparison was that the most and the least suggestible were not Moonies. They didn't join, or at least if they did, they left very quickly within a week or so. So that didn't seem to work either. So I then had to look for why they might actively be susceptible, why the Unification Church could seem to the individuals at that time in the way that it was presented. Some of them changed their mind. A lot of them changed their minds after they joined it. But at the time of the workshop, it seemed to make sense to them. And so I 
did comparisons with the control group. I had a, um, 389 Moonies filled in a 42-page questionnaire, and then 45 um, further ones who hadn't replied the first time filled in a one-page questionnaire, which came to 425 altogether, which was a 96% response rate, which was fantastic. Um, you very rarely get that high, but they, they were told to fill it in. That took quite a lot of work to get the powers that be to do that. Um, but that's another story. And then I had 110 control group who would fill in a 36-page questionnaire, which was very like the Mooney questionnaire, but didn't include some questions about um, what happened after they joined the church. I found that they were uh, disproportionately young, um, twice as many men as women, which was slightly surprising. Um, they were uh, disproportionately middle class. Um, they had educational achievements that were higher than average. A quarter of them had been to private schools rather than 5% of the general population. Um, some had been disillusioned dropouts, disillusioned with college, university. Um, a lot of them said that they'd had spiritual or religious experiences, but they hadn't understood these. There were no concepts. And in the 70s, you know, you could talk about sex the whole time. If Freud had been alive, he'd have said that it was spiritual, um, the spiritual experiences that you couldn't talk about rather than sexual experiences. This is less the case now. Now it's more about death more often. But um, anyway, th th there were no concepts available. And in the workshop, they did provide concepts. It was okay to talk about spiritual experiences which would very often then be interpreted to fit with the unification theology. Um, their families, by a whole lot of criteria, were good families. They didn't beat people up. Um, and they were joining because of their good families rather than in spite of their good families. The parents tended to be in jobs like being nurses, doctors, um, firemen, soldiers, people who gave some kind of service. Uh, I didn't find um, stockbrokers or people going in for heavy business, making money. Um, responsibility was important. Responsibility for not only yourself, but for other people. And values were unambiguous. They were fairly straightforward. Um, religious Nearly all of them believed in God, but interestingly, um, nearly half of the parents belonged to different religions, which suggests that perhaps they thought religion was important, but it was all right not to just accept the one religion that they had been um, socialized into. Um, when describing their family, they said that some of them, some of them said that the families were overprotective and others said that they were over-liberal. And that was quite interesting as well. Um, they were seeking things to some extent, but not to the extent that was vastly different from the um, control group. 
the thing they wanted most, the scored highest on a list of um, things, how, how important and how actively seeking were you of the following things. Control group was first, then better relationships with others, then understanding God or spiritual fulfillment, success in career, improving the world, high standard of living. And then I did a pilot study with about a dozen Moonies, which uh, before I sent out the, the, the whole lot. And I went through these with the Moonies, asking them to explain. It, it was a combination of open and um, previous choice um, questions. And he said when he came to this list, well, I was looking for something, but I didn't know what. And I thought, well, that's a bit strange, but I'll, I'll put it in the final questionnaire, and I did. And the Moonies would write, yes, exclamation mark, and the control group would sort of write, what the F, stupid question. And there was a big, big difference between this. The Moonies had been looking for something, um, but they didn't quite know what. And one thing that I found over and over again was that in the workshop, when they met all the other Moonies, they thought, I have come home. I felt I'd come home. It's not only Moonies, I've heard this by all sorts of people who have joined radical um, religions. I felt I'd come home. So life in the group, now, that, that's a different story as far as the Moonies are concerned. But I do want to ask the question, does the brainwashing, radicalization, mind control, or undue influence continue after joining? And for this, I want to talk about my favorite terrorist. I'm going to call her Amy. And um, she belonged to this group. Um, she got involved uh, after several years in the group in a hijacking. And she went on that with um, a Molotov cocktail kind of bomb. And she was prepared to die and kill other innocent people. Luckily, they were um, overtaken and um, overpowered. Um, she went to prison for a bit. Then she went back to her group. Then she left her group. And then um, she came to see me. I heard that I was interested in new religions. I talked to her quite a lot. And it wasn't until two years after I had met her, I don't know how many times, but a lot of times, um, that it came out that she'd been involved in this terrorist activity. Um, I have gone on, I know her now for about 15 years. She doesn't live in this country, but when she does, she comes and she stays with me. And so I've had a real in-depth talking with her. And I, I, I just want, in the last bit of my talk, to discuss it, the sorts of pushes and pulls that affected her and made her join, and the kind of group that she joined and what happened. So to start with the joining, there was a push um, from herself. I mean, she, she was sort of ready for it. Um, she, she had a sort of psychological disposition where she... She wanted to be someone. She was achievement-oriented. Um, she was idealistic in that she wanted to make the world a better place. Um, she was against the injustice and the evil that she found. And she was also interested in spirituality and um, religion. But um, she wanted this to be 
an active belief. She didn't want to just contemplate her navel or meditate. She really wanted to do something. And then the push from her social environment, um, first of all, her family, they pushed insofar as they had brought her up in a very strict authoritarian structure. She was used to clear guidance and an uncompromising attitude. And she was rebelling against her father, who, who was very authoritarian. Um, and then there was a push from society in that there was a lack of the alternative answers that she was looking for. And she was disillusioned with mainstream religion, which was unjust or hypocritical, apathetic, contrary to divine authority. So there was nothing in society except something she wanted to leave. And then there was a pull from the movement. Its ideology was anti-capitalist materialism. She was fed up with everybody worried about money, but also anti-dialectical materialism. She didn't want to be a Marxist. Um, and again, they were offering her the chance to do something. Um, she believed that God or society wanted her to do someone. She was going to be given the opportunity to be a soldier for God, not in the military sense at that stage. And eventually it was, you know, be a martyr, which actually turned out to be literally true, but she wasn't thinking of it then. She was prepared to sacrifice her life in the sense that she would give her life to God. Um, but she was assuming it would be in this world. Um, spiritual, they, they um, had lots of spiritual rituals. Uh, it was a Hindu-based tradition, and um, so th this was very important to her. Um, it offered the means to achieve um, the goals that she was wanting, and it would be a group effort rather than an individual one. Um, she would... Um, she'd have a sort of belonging and womb-like protection, which was a bit like the family, her family had been offering her that she was used to, and she sort of wanted this clear authority structure that the movement was saying they had the answers, but they weren't the answers that her parents had given and that her father had insisted. So she was swapping the kind of things she'd been prepared for in a kind of way with this um, protection through joining. It was very much an us and them kind of movement, what um, Mary Douglas calls strong group. And the important point is that Amy wasn't joining a terrorist organization, at least she didn't think she was. She was joining an idealistic religious, um, and they, they had orphanages and things, and they, they were going to make the world a better place. Now, life in the group, First of all, there was the guru who was a father figure, and Amy used to talk about him and say how charismatic he was. He, he was a figure of fear and admiration and love, and he was believed to be pretty well infallible with a hotline to God. Um, this, of course, was a kind of projection, but I didn't realize how much until I'd known her again for quite a long time, and it occurred to me to ask her how often she had met with the guru and she had never seen him, ever. And actually, when he died, she wanted to go and see to make sure that he existed, see the corpse. Um, 
So th th this I found, I found it with Moon. Lots of people had a personal relationship with Moon, but they'd never met him. They'd never seen him except in films or things. And um, I, I coined the rather clumsy word charismatization to describe this sort of um, way, process by which a guru can be made to seem the sort of magical person. Um, the development of the ideology overthrowing the bad society and the idea that even if you thought your leader was wrong, you had to follow it because like in the army, if everybody just did their own thing, you wouldn't have the strength of the group. So this was the rationale for not questioning and for doing whatever it was your leader asked. And similarly, the ends were seen to justify the means and a connection was made between the two. Um, hierarchical authority, um, if you wanted to get promoted spiritually or um, in the general thing, then you, you, you had to prove yourself. Um, your identity was redefined as part of the elect. Um, it was a kind of family. They called each other's brothers and sisters. Um, they saw themselves as, as sort of something special and, as I said, very different um, from the rest of the world. Utter group loyalty was important and detachment from the outside meant that there was nowhere she could go if she were to leave anyway and she didn't have alternative ideas being given to her. There was just a complete dependence on the group, um, not only for identity, but for money, direction, and worldview, and this was increased with time. There was sort of jargon that made the in-group, out-group um, ideas. Um, she was continually occupied, so little time for thought, um, sometimes, not always, exhausted through lack of sleep, poor diet, vegetarian diet, which wasn't very good. I don't mean vegetarian diets aren't good, but this vegetarian diet was, wasn't always very good. Um, fear of punishment, um, humiliation and sexual abuse. She was put through some really very nasty rituals, sexual rituals in a graveyard which she found extremely humiliating. Um, suppression of guilt, any kind of independent thought, um, and just sort of suppressing any questioning at all. And this led, she said, to a kind of numbness. And in the end, I stopped feeling. And it was then that she was asked to carry out this terrorist act. So these and other factors um, can be and are resisted if they're too strong or too weak. You have to get the person at the right time. I mean, if she'd known when she first started to join about the sexual rituals in the graveyard, she wouldn't have joined. It was only after she had been through a process. She, she certainly wouldn't have thought that she would go and kill people. Um, when she joined, or for quite a long time into it. But it was sort of gradual interaction between the individual and the social situation, which you could see. Now, different types of people, of course, are susceptible to different types of movements. Uh, I know one family who has three children who joined three completely different movements. 
Um, they were Orthodox Jewish, which was tough for them. Um, if you join the Hare Krishna, you want a, a life of devotion, bhakti. Scientology, you want to improve yourself with their techniques. Um, New Age movement, you want to develop inner spirituality or get in tune to cosmic forces. Um, pagans, you want to be in touch with nature. And there are all sorts of different things. Different people fit different kinds of movements. And, of course, there are different aspects of the group. If you're talking about a group, there's it, the sort of social structure and culture. For example, Al-Qaeda is an it, as it were. And then there's him, the leader, Osama bin Laden. And there are, there are them, the Islamicists, the suicide bombers, the foot soldiers. Amy was a foot soldier. And there are a whole lot of intermediates. And you can't think that the same people would go to different levels. Uh, um, Osama bin Laden wouldn't be a foot soldier in, in that sort of way, or would rise or create his own um, movement, which he, he did. So you've got to look at all these varieties. So, concluding comments. Social life is an ongoing interaction between individuals and a social context. Every individual and every social situation is different. Both are constantly changing over time. There are no cuts. Life's continuous. It's like if you think of a film. Each frame has a similar similarity to the previous frame. You don't cut to somewhere completely different. But there is always change between each of the frames. Societies aren't subject to social laws in the way that nature is. But we can discern regularities and patterns and probabilities. And every individual is different, but we can discern bundles of predisposition, characteristics, values, aspirations, and histories. And of course, it's far more complicated than that. And chance always plays a significant role in why someone chooses to follow a religion. Things happen, I just happened to be crossing the street and I bumped into this Mooney. If I hadn't gone out that time or if I'd gone in the other direction, it wouldn't have happened. So we can't expect to be able to predict everything. We can never hope to discover all the factors that lead to any one individual joining a particular radical religion. But we can demonstrate some explanations that are wrong. It was wrong that the Mooney workshop irresistibly and irreversibly washed the, uh, brainwashed the Moonies. Uh, and we can learn something of the predisposing factors that lead people to their joining or not joining. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.